Welcome to another episode of Life Stories by Congo Kid, where I share my experiences of growing up in the Democratic Republic of Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. Many countries are known for their food and cuisine. We identify types of foods by their origins and culture, and it's driven by what grows in those areas. Food dishes and flavors come to mind when one brings up Chinese food, for instance. Rice, brown or white, and sautéed vegetables and meat immediately enter our cerebral vortex, and possibly the concept of Pavlov's dog kicks in, and we start to salivate, thinking about the medium, spicy Kung Pao chicken and how much soy sauce we sprinkle on top, complemented by the egg drop soup or egg rolls. Or, say, Italian food and pasta and lasagna come to mind. Tomato sauces, basil, and Parmesan cheese flood our memories of former palate sessions. Say Sweden, and meatballs jump out as the first thought. Ireland, corned beef and cabbage on St. Patrick's Day. Or here in Southern California, Mexican food is all the rage. Who doesn't love a burrito, or quesadilla, or taco, or carne asada? Unfortunately, there are very few African restaurants in the US in which to sample their food and flavors. To that end, today's episode is to share with you the food types and flavors that I grew up eating and loving in the Democratic Republic of Congo in the 1960s through the 1980s. Also, how the food is prepared will also be shared to further shed light on the time and effort for a typical villager to prepare a simple meal. We can pop something in the microwave and have a tasty quality meal in a matter of minutes. Prepping a simple meal in Congo can involve hours of hard labor and days of time to elapse from start to finish. Let's talk the staples. These are corn and manioc. You may know manioc as yucca or cassava. About half a billion people survive on this route. Both corn and manioc are starches. Meat is a rarity, which if it is to be had, it's added to the meal in various forms. But most village meals revolve around corn and manioc related ingredients. The corn is field corn. It's not the golden, large-eared, genetically and fertilized enhanced corn you find in the produce bin at your local grocery store. The kernels are of different colors, not sweet, and the ears are much smaller due to soil conditions and lack of fertilizer and pesticide. Upon harvest, the corn is dried on the ear, then manually husked. The corn is stored inside a hut in a bin above the fire to keep bugs and critters from eating it. When it's time to prepare it to eat, a basket of corn is placed in a local stream where the water isn't running fast. It ferments in the water for a few days, then it is removed. Don't ask what's flowing in that stream. You certainly don't want to know. It is then laid on wicker mats to dry in the sun amongst the wandering chickens, goats, and ducks. I'll let your imagination work on that one too. The fermented and dried kernels are placed in a large wooden funnel-shaped bowl carved from a tree trunk and hand-pounded by a girl or lady by lifting a large, heavy wooden spindle for hours to create corn flour. This flour is called fufu, a common name in many African countries for the same thing. Water is then boiled. The ratio is about five parts water to three parts corn flour or fufu. It is stirred while it becomes a porridge consistency, left on the fire until the water evaporates further until it is a thick mash consistency. It is now called fuku, and fuku is then eaten plain, or 
If other accoutrements are available, the fuku mash is dipped into those items to add flavor. Fuku is an acquired taste, and most kids I grew up with loved fuku. It's tangy taste due to fermentation, and the dipping of a glob of fuku into a meat sauce or other food dish was terrific. I reached out to Dan Norin, one of my childhood friends, who was born and raised in Congo. He's probably one of the top three people I know who fully integrated into the Congolese culture with Congolese friends, village life, hunting, language, and food appreciation during his growing up years. Dan is currently a French professor at a state university in Michigan, and I've invited him to share and elaborate the various food types we enjoyed in the Democratic Republic of Congo back in the 1960s and 70s and early 80s. Here are his thoughts on fuku. Oh, I started eating fuku when I was probably two years old, and it's one of my favorite heart foods, I guess you could say, you know, and I absolutely love it. And uh, compared to rice, I would eat fuku over rice any day. The manioc plant provides the other two staples that is the foundation of a typical Congolese villager's diet. First is the root, which can grow to the size of a man's forearm. Similar to how the cornmeal was prepared, so too is the manioc root. It is dug up, dried, fermented in the stream for a few days, redried, and pounded up into a flour. One key reason for the soaking in the local stream is for poison prevention. Manioc root contains cyanide. If eaten raw, the poisons accumulate in the body and result in all sorts of problems like goiters or nerve-damaging disorders. Drying also helps to remove the cyanide in the root. As an aside, the manioc root can have the starch extracted, leaving tapioca. Most of us have heard of tapioca, so now you have that little factoid. The manioc flour was then used in two ways. First was to add to the corn or fufu flour to prepare the fuku mash. It should be noted that in the preparation of the fuku, different tribes and even regionally, there was a variant as to the preparation of the fuku mash. For instance, in the east of where I grew up, they preferred to add more manioc flour to the corn flour to alter the taste. While in the area I lived in, the proportion of manioc flour to the fufu powder was less. Some areas of fuku was almost pure manioc flour with minimal corn called muteke. I wasn't a big fan personally. Dan explains further. The the Bacas in the Caro region, they put more corn in the food, in my experience, they put more corn in the fuku than anyone else. Bado, you have Banzas there, Banzas put in less corn, more manioc. When you get down to Bumba, the corn was gone completely and they just had straight songo, straight fufu, or even something else called poto. Poto was horrible stuff. <laughs> it's just, it was just um, served cold and it was songo, manioc based, but Basically there, you could get the warm stuff too, like fuku, but they had no corn in it, in it at all. The second use of the manioc flour was for making kwanga. Kwanga is the word they used in the Bible, which translated into Lingala for bread. It was considered a daily staple, as in, quote, one's daily bread, unquote. To make kwanga, they take the pounded manioc root, soak it, cook it up into a paste, and roll it out onto banana leaves. The banana leaves are then rolled to about a one and one and a half inch diameter rope between one or two feet long and wrapped with a piece of twine. The kwanga inside is then protected from the elements, bugs, dirt, and the like, and can be carried around or stored until consumption. The older it is, though, the riper it gets. Many times we'd be out hunting, and uh, all we had along was kwanga and peanuts, and we would stop under a tree, we brought along like some kind of bottle of water too, 
but we would just eat kwanga and peanuts under a tree about noon or one in the afternoon and sit around there for about an hour eating kwanga and peanuts and then you're ready to go again and we could walk another couple hours it's really good because kwanga of course is starch and peanuts are protein and carbohydrate so it's a really good lunch for refreshing the body and giving you you know giving you strength again now What's interesting about kwanga is that the fermentation process results in a smell that is way up there in terms of royal stink. The longer before eating it, the more pungent it gets. Wow-wee, it's wicked. For example, at our high school initiation, we'd often cut a piece off and make the freshmen wear it around their neck. It's so bad that if I tried to bring a three-inch piece of kwanga onto an airline flight in the U.S., they'd evacuate the plane. Seriously. It wasn't until I was a teenager that I started to eat and enjoy kwanga. Remember, this is the fermented manioc root tied in banana leaves that pins the needle on the stink meter. However, if warmed up and eaten with salted roasted peanuts, it tastes great. There's apparently a chemical reaction between one's saliva, the peanuts, and the kwanga that makes it complimentary and really good. The smell then doesn't become a factor to the taste, which is contrary to what we normally experience between our nose and taste buds. Go figure. The kwanga is, is an acquired taste, just like, uh, you know, blue cheese and roquefort cheese from France, if you like the French cheeses that are very ripe, raunchy cheeses, as some people would say. Uh, fuku and, uh, sorry, kwanga is downright raunchy. If you just uh, showed that to, or brought it out at the table in the U.S., you would get uh, booed and kicked out of the house. It's really stinky, but if you grow up on it again, I don't remember the first time I ate kwanga because I, as long as I can remember, I ate kwanga, and I always liked it. Along with peanuts, it creates a flavor that's hard to describe unless you've tried it yourself. But of course, you have to be courageous enough to try it because it's, it's so foul-smelling. But I just love eating kwanga and peanuts because it's just, they go together really well. Being a starch, both fuku and kwanga are very heavy foods that sit in your stomach, filling you up. Dan further explains this phenomenon. Yeah, fuku is, is very heavy. A little bit of fuku goes a long ways, for sure. You can't eat a lot of fuku, and when you do, you have really bad indigestion. It tastes so good, you eat more than you should, and then it just sits there. Kwanga does, kwanga does that too, by the way. <laughs> so between kwanga and fuku, they're very heavy food. So when you eat fuku, you, you're, you, know, you need to take your siesta right after that and not do anything for about two hours. So fuku is very heavy, and it's and it's hard, it's hard to digest. Corn is hard to digest in, in particular. So this is corn and manioc mixed. So it's, it's not easy to digest fuku. You have to let it sit there a while for sure. And it'll sit in your stomach for a long time. Yeah. The leaves of the manioc plant provide the second source of food and nutrients. The leaves are picked and similar to the corn and manioc are placed in the same large wooden bowl and pounded by hand. The result is if you took spinach leaves, for example, and put in your food processor and hit the chop button. While you can do it in a matter of seconds, the village lady, unfortunately, takes much, much longer. To cook the manioc leaves, they are boiled and various items are added if available. This could include pounded peanuts, palm oil, fish, chicken, and other mystery goodies that I will enlighten you about later. Most dishes are seasoned with salt and hot peppers called pili pili. The peppers varied on the Scoville scale, so it was often hit or miss if it was mild, medium, or flamethrower hot. But the Congolese love their pili pili. Pondu is such a simple yet flexible dish based on what you put in it. Dan grew up eating pondu and loved it. 
it's again, it's a childhood memory. I started eating it when I was just a kid. I don't remember the first time I had it. That's how far back it goes. And it has a great texture, a great flavor. It just tastes like Africa to me, all wrapped up in one little dish there, you know? One time I was hunting out by the bottle rocks and we came in really late and I was really hungry. And I didn't even know these people, except the guy I was hunting with, I guess it was, said, okay, let's go in the, into my uh, cousin's house, I think it was, and let's have some fuku and pondu. And we went in there and she had put sardines in the pondu and I'd never experienced that before. And it was sardines with some kind of tomato sauce. I'm guessing it was mackerel and, and tomato sauce mixed in with the pondu. Of course, I was super hungry, but the fuku and the pondu and the sardines, I, I don't think I've ever tasted anything better in my life at this point. So now we have the main staples of the Congolese villager diet. Most meals revolved around these three items, corn mash or fuku, manioc flour, which is included in the fuku or prepared separately as kwanga, and the manioc leaves, similar to spinach, also called pondu in the Lingala language. Besides water, red palm oil is the cooking medium of choice. Red palm oil can be found in the U.S. in certain ethnic stores, but can be hard to find. It stains, and many Americans don't like the smell or taste as compared to vegetable oil. This is a hard commodity to come by with considerable effort to garner a mere pint of the liquid gold. The heads of the palm trees are cut down. These can weigh 60 to 80 pounds and have the palm nut embedded on the exterior of the head. The palm nuts are then pulled out. The palm nuts themselves have a small layer of husk covering a hard nut that requires a hammer to break. And inside the nut is another small kernel that also has oil in it and is used by many industries. The entire nut is boiled for hours to loosen up the layer of husk surrounding the nut, then pounded to loosen it up, and then it's boiled some more and then squeezed to extract the oil. Once the big vat of water and oil cools a bit, they skim off the oil from the top. A huge 20-gallon vat can yield just a few cups of oil. Hard work indeed. When one is invited to eat at a village in the 1970s, the setting is usually around the low table and low chairs all around. There may be one or more bowls of fuku and the same for pondu. Each person shares from the common bowls and grabs their fuku, balls it up in their hand, then dips into the pondu spinach dish or meat dish if there is one and eats it. Everyone's hands are in all the bowls. Then after eating, a bowl of clean water and towel is given to the guest of the highest honor to wash his or her hands first. Then the next highest of honor washes their hands and so on. However, as the years have progressed, there are often plates and utensils and sharing a common bowl isn't quite the norm. So as I mentioned earlier, protein is minimal in their diet. So when they have it, it's often thrown into the pondu manioc dish to add flavor and nutrients. A few items include peanuts, snails or fish. If they have chicken, goat, freshwater eel, or other items, those are prepared separate from the pondu. If there was a hunter in the village lucky enough to bag a monkey or antelope, it was party time. My favorite meat dishes were goat or monkey. But one never knows what is in the pondu. It was back in the late 1970s while on a village trip with my dad and his evangelism team. We were served a meal inside a hut with only a kerosene lantern to see by. We started digging in, dipping the fuku into the pondu. It was tasty. Then I felt something in my mouth the size of a pinky finger, and when I bit it, it left a sour taste. After a few of these, curiosity got the better of me. So I had my dad grab his flashlight. Guess what? I was eating fat, plump caterpillars. That explained it. Lots of other items are added to the pondu dish, and Dan Noren shares some of his favorites. 
I would say probably the smoked eels, jumbo, jumbo mixed in with pondu and of course chopped up peanuts. Yeah, you can't beat that. That's really, that's tops. Taking a stroll to the local market will reveal all sorts of other items that are eaten by the Congolese. There will always be some lady cutting up green plantains and deep frying them in a pan of red palm oil. Add some salt and yum. Or another treat is the very same lady scooping out a mushy paste of pounded plantains that are very ripe and dropping into a pan of hot boiling palm oil. These deep fried cakes are awesome. We called them makatis. They would take very ripe plantains that were mushed up and then made little patties and, and then dipped in palm oil there. Very filling. You're getting a good carbohydrate. You're getting your, your beta carotene and you're also getting palm oil, which isn't so great, but it'll fill you up because it's very rich. You, know, so. you will also find peanuts. Some are being sold raw. Some are already roasted in salt water over a hot pan to make the best roasted peanuts ever. What a tasty treat. A can of planter's peanuts here doesn't even come close. There may be a huge pan of snails that someone gathered in the forest. The ladies selling them will often have to flick them back into the bowl as they were slowly crawling out. There are some species that are monster in size, three to four times the size of the normal ones we're familiar with. Seasonal items include roasted caterpillars, huge pans of them. How they catch them is beyond me. They're crunchy and remind me of eating bako bits. Grubs are often added to pondu or fried up separately as they too provide protein. One can find them in rotting palm trees. Not the red palm nut palm tree, but the type the Africans tap for making palm wine. For some reason, the trunk is less dense, and you can always find tons of grubs in a rotting tree trunk in the forest. Better yet is the flying ant. Similar to termites here in the U.S., these flying ants swarm periodically. As a kid, we'd catch them as they were attracted to light. We'd have an incandescent bulb outside, and the flying ants would be hitting the light and falling to the ground. I'd pick one up, grab it by its wings, place the body inside my teeth, and pull off the wings, leaving the ant inside. Crunch. Down it went. But eating flying ants onesie-twosie wasn't efficient. The best way to catch lots of them was to light a torch outside when they were swarming. They'd fly to the torch, their wings would singe or burn off, and they'd fall. A strategically placed bowl of water would capture the wingless ants, and alas, they drowned. So seeing a huge pan with 20 pounds of termites for sale in the market wasn't unusual. Sautéed in a pan with butter or oil and a bit of salt, and they were great. The flying ants were one of my greatest uh, culinary delights, actually, in Congo. So I remember one time up at Wasola, we were there during the dry season. So up until March, and just at the end of March, the rain started, and the, dongi, the flying dongies, the flying ants come out after the first big rain out of the anthills, and I was out there with some Congolese friends, and we collected them through the night and ended up with basketfuls of these things. Then we brought them out, we just laid them out on the ground on a mat, and the sun literally dried them out within a few hours, and then you could just eat them like that. Or you could fry them in palm oil, and I really like that too, but we just ate so many of those things. They're really good for you. They're protein and fat, and the insect fat is good fat. So. It's a very, very, very uh, nutritious kind of thing to be eating. A special treat with flying ants was called gâteau blanc, which is French for white cake. Rarely can you find ripe squash for collecting the seeds and also having the ants swarm. Dan elaborates. One time at Kerawa, we were hunting, and we ran into a woman who was coming out of her gardens, and she asked us if we were hungry. 
And we said, sure. And she gave us these little patties. I'd never had that before. It was sunflower seeds, not sunflower seeds, sorry, squash seeds that had been all, you know, pounded in a mortar and pestle kind of thing into a paste. And then she mixed that with the flying ants, the, the nongis that were, that had been fried, I think in palm oil. And it was a kind of a pasty little patties all mixed up with the flying ants and the squash seeds. And it was really good and very, very filling. You could only eat like one patty and you'd had enough because it was so, so rich. But that was one of the best foods I ever had and I'd never, I'd never heard of it. It's like, what is this? And I took a bite. Oh my goodness, it's flying ants mixed with squash seeds. Another fun thing was digging up a mound building termite ant hill. Mixing their saliva with the red clayish dirt, they'd build huge hills, normally six to 10 feet high, but sometimes hills could become larger than a house. Digging through the hard dirt was backbreaking work as it was nearly as hard as concrete. Once penetrated, the soldier ants would crawl all over looking to fight off the digging intruder. They had big yellow heads with two pinchers that would cut deep enough to draw lots of blood. Catching these guys and frying them up in some butter was fun. Another way to eat the soldier ants was to catch them without being bit, good luck, holding them up to the front edge of your shirt and they'd pinch it and become affixed to your shirt hem. Simply pull the body off and you had a row of soldier ant heads ready to eat at a later time for a snack. But the big prize was finding the queen. She was always in the center of the anthill in a smooth chunk of hard clay. Hours of digging and dodging the pinching soldier ants would yield the reward Cracking open the brick-sized dirt clod yielded the queen ant. Her body was the same size as the average termite, but her egg sac was huge, often the size of a man's thumb. Sautéed in butter? Mm-mm, good. Okra is also grown and eaten. They will cook it and mix it with other items. Another way it's prepared is to cook it, pound it until it turns into a gelatin, and add to a meat dish. It has a tangy taste and is the consistency of snot, to put it bluntly. It was called Yiki. I remember the fun I had as a teenager sitting in a mud hut, grabbing the meat chunk that had been prepared in the Yiki and pulling it up and up and up about two feet above the bowl, like a warm piece of cheese on a pizza. Then using my other hand to pull it till it broke off, then slurp it into my mouth. Not many of my fellow American friends like Yiki, but I did. Rice could also be had at a local market periodically. Though not a staple for a typical villager due to the cost, Folks in the city would enjoy rice. It was considered for the higher socioeconomic people generally. Or if one had guests to serve, rice was the carbohydrate of choice versus fuku. In 2013, I went to Congo for a few weeks and we stayed in a guest house with several others. We pooled our money and a cook purchased and prepared our daily meals. The first few lunches and dinners were rice with pondu in a meat dish. After a few days, I asked where the fuku was. The cook replied that the American visitors always preferred rice. I had to make a special request so that fuku was on the menu daily during my tenure as I can get rice anywhere, but I can't get fuku in the U.S. You can take the kid out of Congo, but you can't take the Congo out of the kid. I will say, however, that my mom came up with a recipe that comes close. I buy regular cornmeal at the store along with gari, which is a cassava flour from an ethnic store, and cook it up with some vinegar to give it a fermented taste. Jumping a bit off topic, but still related to Congolese food, I need to share a story from my 2013 trip to Congo. When we flew up country, my suitcase got off at the one stop we had. Unfortunately, for almost two weeks, I didn't have my suitcase to the day we left to return. Apparently, it had sat in a warehouse buried under a sack of dried fish. 
Woo-wee, did it smell. Little did I know that that would work to my advantage. You see, the day we left, I bought a large sack of fufu flour and put it in my suitcase. I think the statute of limitations has ended so I can continue with the story and not get in trouble. When preparing to land, I read the fine print on the customs declaration form about whether dried, pounded, and lightly roasted corn and manioc flour was allowed upon entry. Upon arrival at Los Angeles International Airport, I had to get my suitcase and proceed through customs. While going through the line, the police are patrolling with dogs looking for drugs. One dog came up to my suitcase and started to sniff and sniff. My mind started to race, formulating my story and excuse and alleged ignorance to the fermented cornmeal not being allowed in. The officer was talking to another officer and I tried to act normal and was trying to figure out how to explain what fufu was as it didn't qualify as a fruit or vegetable contraband. Fortunately, Fido moved on to another suitcase to sniff and my big bag of fufu made it home. Once home, I did sit my suitcase in the hot sun for three days to get the stink out. And when I'm needing a Congolese meal fix, I cook up a small batch of fufu and eat it with some cooked chicken and red palm oil, of course. Seven years later, I still have some in my freezer, if you can believe that. But back to the topic of food. Fish were a large part of their diet, especially those that lived near big rivers or streams. Preservation was by smoking or drying, and thus it could be stored for a period of time and transported to a city for sale. I remember as a kid, we would often go to a lake where we had a few vacation homes. We'd catch grasshoppers during the day and then put them on hooks as bait and tie the line to a tree and put the hooks along the bank of the lake at night. Every hour or so, we'd patrol our lines with our flashlights in hand and catch little catfish. We'd then spend the next day smoking them over a fire and eating them. What fun. Big rivers resulted in all sorts of fish, including monster catfish and one prized fish called the Nile perch. Excellent tasting fish indeed. Fishermen knew we Americans liked Nile perch and they would rush it to our home to sell it for a good price. The trick to determine how fresh it was included checking the color of the gills. Pink was good. Brown was bad. The tastiest of all the fish was the freshwater eel. You've heard Dan reference eel, or jombo, as we called it, quite often. They were in the streams and rivers, but hard to catch. Eels are elusive and dug holes along the banks of rivers and streams that extended back many, many feet. To catch the eels, the fishermen would walk along the bank, poking a stick into logical spots for where there might be a hole. Finding one, he'd take his bait, hook, and line, and push the baited hook as far back into the hole as he could. Then he'd hope to return with a big fat eel on the hook. I must say that I'd forgotten how tasty eel is. In 2013, one day at lunch, I went to the local market to get something to eat. A lady was selling fuku and cooked eel. It was the best meal I'd had in a year by far. If I was facing execution tomorrow and could order my last meal, it would be fuku, pondu, and a freshwater eel meat sauce cooked in palm oil and peanuts. Let's see what Dan's favorite meal ever is. Mushrooms cooked in a peanut sauce and mushrooms in season, you know, along with fuku. That was absolutely to die for kind of stuff to eat. Really, really good. So makombo and fuku were so good. But probably my all-time favorite out there was fuku and then jumbo, right? Eels, smoked eels in palm oil and peanut sauce. Boy, there's, if you get that done just right, I can't think of anything that tastes better anywhere the Congolese did raise some livestock. Most had chickens that ran around the village. Ducks were also raised, as were goats, sheep, and occasionally pigs. When there was a celebration or festival, they would harvest from their livestock. When there was a big party, they would often say, Kufa." Translated literally from Lingala, that means a goat will die. Meat as we know it was a treat. 
Some meat was grown domestically and some was shot by hunters. These red meats were cooked up in a separate dish or may have been added to the Pondu Maniac leaf dish. Probably the best red meat I've ever had was at Tombolet's house. I've been hunting with Phil Faulkner and we shot a Sala monkey, which is a Smith's white nose Guinan in English. And uh, Tombolet's wife cooked it for us. And there was Pondu on the side and this, uh, this monkey meat in peanut sauce and palm oil with fuku. And that is the best red meat I've ever had anywhere. Being in the tropics, we had fruit galore. Oranges, grapefruit, avocados, regular bananas, apple bananas, and pineapple were abundant. Guavas were also prevalent. At the boarding school I went to, they served fruit salad with pineapple every day for at least one meal. My taste buds must have finally rebelled as in high school, I started to hate pineapple. To this day, it's the only thing I don't like. Other fruits we enjoyed were star fruit and mangoes. Boy, did we love mango season as we had numerous huge trees producing hundreds of mangoes. Mom would also make green mango sauce, which is very similar to applesauce. Papaya was also a daily staple for breakfast. There were trees everywhere. Try sprinkling a bit of salt on the papaya and wow, does it ever turn sweet. Another root was from the elephant ear plant, otherwise known as taro. A mature elephant ear plant can be dug up and the root produces a tuber about the size of small potato. Roast those on the fire and mmm, mmm, good. Yams were also grown and were part of our diet. Breadfruit was one of my favorite. Breadfruit is about the size of a bowling ball. We'd take a ripe one, toss it in the fire, and let it cook for an hour or so. Then we'd pull it out, drop it in a bucket of water to cool, and then we'd scrape off the charred stuff and cut it open. After letting it cool further, we'd break the pieces out, often topping with salt, and eat it. Tasted sort of like pasty bread. We'd used it in casseroles, too, as substitute for potatoes when we couldn't buy potatoes, if I recall correctly. Cocoa grew there, too. We'd break open a pod and suck on the thin layer of meat around the actual bean for a sweet treat. I did try to dry some cocoa beans and grind them up for a science project to make chocolate. Tasted pretty good. Sugarcane was also prevalent, being in the tropics. And I actually have a bunch in my backyard here in Southern California. Coffee was also grown locally. So unlike Starbucks, where you can grind it fresh here, we'd roast it and grind it literally the same day as well. Another nut we'd occasionally enjoy was the cola nut. Yes, you heard right, cola, as in Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola. This nut is almost pure caffeine. The way to consume the cola nut is as follows. You'd chew it and chew it and chew it, all the while wanting to spit out this terribly bitter taste in your mouth. As you chewed it into grounds, you'd spit out the excess saliva. Now, after about five or 10 minutes of enduring this incredibly bitter taste, the taste in your mouth would begin to become sweet. A chemical reaction between your saliva and the cola nut ultimately would produce a very sweet taste that would last for hours. Imagine when you pop in a piece of gum and for about 30 seconds it tastes sweet or minty or whatever the flavor is. However, after chewing it, the flavor dissipates and eventually 10 minutes later, you don't know if it was mint or juicy fruit flavor. Well, the cola nut sweet taste lasted for hours. If you needed or wanted a caffeine kick, simply swallow some of the liquid and it would be like five cups of coffee in one shot or popping five no-dose pills at once. After a few minutes, you then spit out the grounds and enjoy a sweet taste in your mouth for a long time. I did find a store locally some years ago that had cola nuts, and I did buy a few for sure. It's, we start off, it's as bitter as quinine, like we used to take at the Ubangi Academy in Nivakin, which is, a hydro, which is chloroquine, actually, right? They're out, that's all the talk these days. With, anyway, so we used to take chloroquine every day with breakfast, and it's bitter. it was bitter like that. 
Well, once you chew on it for a little while, then it gets, you actually end up with a sweet taste in your mouth. And then, yeah, we'd been hunting and walking all day and, and Gonzangos gave us cola nuts. It was like four o'clock in the afternoon. And we got up and we went for another three hours and came back at dark and went out and shot an antelope and everything <laughs> after Gonzangos gave us cola nuts. And his little son came walking along with us and he found a coal in a tree in the, in the jungle on our, on our on our way up to the Sobe. We we're going to look for antelopes. And he sent his little son up the tree and he knocked down about 10 coal nuts and he kept, you know, collected them in a basket and away we went with coal nuts. So they were just growing there in the jungle wild. As you probably picked up in hearing my stories and those from Dan, food is more than just about taste. It's tied to memories of friends in our childhood. It's why grandma's apple pie tastes better than anything a bakery can produce. Why? Because we associate the memories of family, friends, holidays, love, and our growing up eating grandma's apple pie, for example. I think it's because it's a childhood uh, memory for the most part, associated with being with little Congolese kids who were my best friends at the time, and speaking their language and eating their food, and their, the food and the language go together, right, in the culture. So it's a, it's a childhood, wonderful memory with my African friends, and it was... Uh, one of those uh, memories that you just can never quite forget. And it's connected with taste and smell. And of course, the situation, the tropics and the palm trees and the bougainvilleas all around, and it's all wrapped up in food and smells and all those wonderful memories. He goes on to say, it's, it's memory and associated experiences that you had with that food in particular with, with really good friends in Congo many years ago in a totally different place where most of those people have, some of those people have died at this point, you know? More than just the great taste of food, memories are about who you spend time with and eat with. At the dorm, Yubangi Academy, uh, my brother and I would have every Sunday afternoon, either Dongoli or Tombolais, and we would go squirrel hunting on Saturday, and I'd always get a couple of squirrels, and then he would cook that together with fuku, so squirrels and a kind of a peanut and palm oil sauce. So that was really good too. So we would have that every Sunday afternoon. Of course, this is after you had your big Sunday meal at, at the dorm too. We'd always just end up being stuffed on Sunday and really good African food in the afternoon, like four or five thirty, you know. And then of course dinner came around, we didn't want to eat anything at dinner. So I wanted to share with you the challenges of basic sustenance of a typical villager in the Congo, as well as the wide variety of foods that were available during my growing up years in the tropical environment. There were many more foods and fruits I didn't touch on, but I hope this episode on the foods of Congo gives you a better appreciation and education about the Congolese culture and foods in general. Strange foods, ones Dan and I consider delicacies, would be repulsive to many non-Congolese, and that's understandable. But like with any kind of ethnic food, I always take the opportunity to try new foods and dishes whenever I have the chance. Fortunately, there are many cultures that have brought their foods to America and many restaurants are nearby, allowing us to experience the taste from throughout the world. Many thanks to Dan Norn for helping share the memories and particulars to some of our favorite foods, both basic staples and delicacies that we both love. He helped capture the message that food is more than taste. It's about remembering your childhood, culture, and friends. And in a way, the food you love is part of your identity. If you ever get the chance to try some Congo cuisine, I urge you to do one thing. Dig in. So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will join me again. 
Other episodes and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, Life Stories by Congo Kid Podcasts can be found on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, a.k.a. Congo Kid, your humble host. Until next time, I send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Paninganangai, tikalamalamu. My friends, stay well. Hey, Malumuna.